Welcome to the Pain Solutions Podcast. Dr. Wayne Fimister is a family physician with a special interest in chronic pain, whose passion is finding solutions for this epidemic problem facing one-third of the adult population. He is a clinical associate professor at the University of British Columbia in Canada and has developed one of the first online medical trigger point injection courses for doctors and nurse practitioners, a technique that is easily learned and implemented into the medical office of any doctor or nurse practitioner treating chronic pain. To get free access to Pain Solutions newsletter, blogs, and to register for his online course, simply register at www.waynefimister.com. On the podcast, Dr. Wayne brings together experts from various segments to share with you how they solve people's pain problems and how you can get this treatment too. And now, here's your host, Dr. Wayne Fimister. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this special episode of the podcast show. My very special guest tonight is Melissa Caddy. Dr. Melissa Caddy, she's an osteopathic trained physician and certified anesthesiologist and specialist in pain medicine. So welcome, Melissa. Thank you very much. I appreciate you inviting me. So a little bit of Melissa's background. She has been a personal trainer in the past. She's been managing her own physical fitness to the highest level, becoming a champion physician in the level of fitness. She's also written an amazing book called Pandemic, and we're going to talk about that tonight. And she's got lots to say about pain and how do you heal from it? So I'm really looking forward to this one. Uh, so I'm going to start off, Melissa, as regular. And just let's go back in time a little bit. Just tell us where you grew up and went to college. Well, I am a native Texan. Um, nobody believes that because uh, I don't seem to have the, the deep draw. But uh, I, I grew up in the Dallas area. I moved into Austin and went to my undergraduate, do my undergraduate work, actually a Bachelor of Science in Microbiology. Um, something interesting is I didn't know that the physiology or, or the kinesiology degree was not in the College of Sciences. It was in the College of Education. So just decided I didn't want to start over. So I just finished that out. But really, my heart was in more kinesiology, I think. So that's where I went to school, and that was the degree um, I got. Okay, so you went on to osteopathic medical school and then trained there. But what made you go into the world of pain medicine? And anesthesiology? Well, I think it really is a combination of a lot of, I mean, you feel like you're kind of one of those pinball machines that you jump to something else and your attention gets drawn to other interests. But I had a, a real strong desire to learn. I realized that my biggest uh, strength going is just always wanting to learn more. And so I actually applied to the medical school the whole system, the way that Texas did it at the time, the osteopathic school in Fort Worth, uh, TCOM, was separate than the Apple. I was accepted at the University of Texas at Houston and also at TCOM, but I had this desire to learn manual type medicine or this, this idea of diagnosing and treating with my hands. So I was accepted to both, but opted to go into the osteopathic school to learn something a little bit different. And after that, I ended up into what we call allopathic training. Uh, most MDs don't refer to it that way, but when you're an osteopathic physician, you tend to refer to not. So I went to all my training. I did general surgery for a year. I did a year of internal medicine, and I also did my anesthesiology. And actually, that was not really intended to be that way. I was interested in physiatry or physical medicine and and rehab, thought about orthopedic surgery, 
I was being told or pulled into doing pathology. I mean, there was just, it was a unbelievable assortment of things. But I think what caught my attention the most about pain is that we were dealing with people on the wards during my general surgery internship and during anesthesiology. And when I found that immediate gratification of acutely helping people with pain, I think first directed me that way. And I also had dealt with back pain myself throughout my medical school time frame, and intermittently throughout my personal experience. And I felt like a very positive approach to it. And when I was finishing my anesthesia residency, I knew that I didn't want to go back to training. And I knew that the whole pain medicine fellowship would be something beneficial. But, you know, that's why I went into the pain medicine. It was just a lot of these exposures to... It really just feels good to people get out of pain. But there's also a flip side of work that needs to be done by the individual. And that's that's the part I felt like I brought to the table the most. Okay. So in your practice right now, what is your typical Monday to Friday doing, whether it's the OR or whether it's clinic work with pain management specific? What's your schedule like? An interesting twist um, that most pain physicians after out of fellowship don't do. Um, but I opted immediately out of training to have a little bit of self-care system and had no desire to do five days a week. I really felt like I had so many other things that I enjoyed doing and can be incredibly, I don't want to say draining in a negative way, but it, it really a lot of responsibility for that. And some of these stories are really just sometimes very sad and or um, just difficult. There's a part of you that really has to make sure you're taking care of yourself. And so I actually started doing anesthesia three or four days a week right out of the gates. And I say that because I fellowship and substituted for a physician locally in Austin. And there was a lot of opioids being prescribed on a daily basis. And I didn't want to be part of that. I felt like not that every practice had to be that way, but I knew that the way I practiced during my fellowship, I spent a lot of time with patients and I did a lot of education and I continuously sought education even after, immediately after my fellowship. I really felt strongly that I didn't want to cause more harm to people than necessary. And I felt like we should always start with the lower real belief in that capacity to actually help themselves and use us more as bridges versus as dependence or dependency, um, like getting on a train. And so the way that the model is in America and the way the insurance pays is usually for procedures and not usually spending time in educating and empowering patients. So I didn't feel like I had a lot of confidence that I could sustain a practice in a traditional pain setup when I'm not traditionally doing pain, uh, at least the way I was trained to do. So this last nine years, ironically, I've been doing anesthesia three to four days now and four days a week, so Tuesday through Friday. But that gives me the time and the luxury to be able to go to conferences and meet amazing like-minded people and uh, have the ability to expand my mind and my approaches and my understandings of how you can approach pain. So I wrote my book actually in 2014, 2015, that was released in 2016. And I've been creating online access to interviews of pain professionals and pain challengers, people in the medical system. So I'm just a really staunch advocate for people to be exposed to the options because I think they deserve that. 
And I know that people find benefit out of things that are interventional, but um, if we can give them something that is less risky and empowers them and rather than have that, then have it depend on us all the time. Excellent. Excellent. You know, one thing I picked up from your book that I'd like you to share, because I think it's brilliant, is when you look at balancing one's lifestyle with any aspect of our life, you know, for example, balancing resting with exercise, balancing the sympathetic nervous system with the parasympathetic nervous system. And not only these two things, but you went through a list of different things. I'd love for you to share maybe a list of different ways that we can bring balance to our life that's maybe outside our regular thinking. Well, I think that we underestimate what goes on between our ears and our mind. And on particular a type of individual that tends to go through the rigorous training and missing out on life in various ways. A lot of medical students, a lot of physicians are hard chargers and they many times stay in this sympathetic mode, which is more of that fight or flight system. And so when you're constantly hard charging and you're keeping yourself on overdrive, stressful living and it has an impact on your adrenal system uh, where eventually it has tremendous impacts throughout your body. But that type of constant go, go, go actually makes yourself want protect mode. And so when you're dealing with someone with pain, pain is not just necessarily injury. It doesn't mean you've necessarily harmed yourself, but it can be a manifestation of this type of protection. And so there are so many things that can put you in that mode, but just simply the type of living that we have right now and all the stress we live, uh, you know, have in our life, especially in America, I would say it's probably in other areas too, but I can speak for the country I live in. And so having a way to reverse that problem, to be more mindful. In fact, I just was using a heart rate variability type of monitor called HeartMath, but I'm not associated with that. But it was pretty fascinating in how your thoughts and your variation connection in your body. Literally, it was very clear the thoughts that I was having when I was disturbed and more at peace. There was definitely a difference in just looking at that. So that's just one way to kind of get some kind of idea of how your internal body is responding to what's going on in your mind. Studies out there to show that mindfulness-based stress reduction, there's various ways, but you can't just do it once. Wayne, it's kind of like saying to your kid, I'm going to give you 200 hugs right now, and I'm not going to give it anymore for the rest of your life. It doesn't make any sense. It's like a process, and our body's always trying to have this balance they call homeostasis, and your body's trying to keep you basically surviving. And so if you feel a sense of intense stress, not because you're running away from a bear, but because you just have this stress constantly in your life, and you never have any downtime to just be at peace, that's going to rev up your system and make you more sensitive and potentially manifest into pain. That's one, one aspect. You know, I always like to tell people, there's always different dogmas of trying to enforce one thing and that it's their thing, it's the important thing. But many things are very important and they all layer on top of each other. And that creates a sum of your life and your health. So not only your thoughts that we were just talking about, but your movement. So if your movement is, it looks like good posture, but you're only in that one position, that's not necessarily a good thing either. You want variety of motion. 
and that variety of motion, if I'm constantly sitting here, in my mind, because of my studying and researching and doing all these things, I realize that my body wants variety. And so when people say just be active, there's some validity to that and really a variety of movement. And so if I'm sitting all the time, I like to reverse my process of what I'm doing to give it some different input. Uh, like I explained to people, if you bend your finger back for five minutes, it doesn't mean you're damaging it or it has some bad inflammatory condition. It could be that your body's trying to tell you, hey, I don't like that. Stop doing that. So, you know, release that tension. I really want to have a different position. So that's just another idea of just the physical body and how sometimes it wants something different. You know, and the other thing is connection. That's one of the biggest predictors of morbidity and mortality. Um, when you look at studies is if you're lonely and you're not connecting with people on a deep level, not superficial level, but and you don't have to necessarily have a lot of those connections, but you need to have some type of deep relationships, whether it's with your children, your spouse, your friends, you know, communities, and that really determines how you live your life. So it's not the fact that you're just lonely. There's also components of the kind of activity you're doing and the thoughts that you're having. And you can never extricate or remove one of these pieces or really work in almost like a symphony. And so you've got to figure out if, you know, what are the things in your life, whether it's your thoughts, your movement, your connections in your community, your nutrition, your hydration, your sleep, that's a huge one. And so I always tell people too, when it comes to, Sleep, water, and food, which one would probably kill you first? <laughs> sleep. We minimize it and say we can sleep when we die, but we need restorative sleep. It's a way to kind of cleanse. The, your body's brilliant. It knows what it needs to do. We don't even have to understand it. Just give it what it needs, listen to it, and you'll be better for it. And you'll actually have a better drive and a willingness to be able to engage in the, the types of activities that maybe you've been neglecting for much of your life. So that's just, that's a taste of it, but they're really essential. Wonderful. Um, I really thank you for just pointing out those about seven different things there. Okay, let's move on to this next subject that um, you mentioned in your book regarding the research around love and how that helps us with our pain. Well, I think it all really kind of comes down to connection you know, I can't give you the exact numbers from that. There was a study that was done uh, regarding, they're putting a cold presser device on those that were looking at pictures of those they love versus someone they don't and things that were less painful if you're reminded of someone you love. And I, I like to tell a story actually of a patient, if you don't mind. I mentioned in the book and it was impressive. I think it was over a couple of years. I did every intervention known to man. And, you know, you had all these abnormalities in MRIs. And we know that MRIs, just looking at an abnormality doesn't tell you that someone has pain. But we were targeting these areas that looked abnormal and seemed to be in the area relevant to his pain. And nothing really touched his pain. And it was probably a year after the last time I did something interventional to this gentleman and he just came back for a follow-up and, you know, I was expecting to do some other intervention, but he really wanted to give some perspective on how he was doing. And I walk in and the moment I saw him, if you just stay present for a moment and you feel the energy and really pay attention, at that moment, I felt something different about him. And 
I was like, how are you doing? And I, I felt like he was doing pretty darn well. And he said, I'm great. I have no pain. And of course, I'm always asking why. And I think that's an important question for every individual that's a patient or even a clinician to ask is, you know, why? Try to make sense of things. Even if our attribution, our guess is wrong, it's good to kind of question and try to investigate. And his immediate answer was, I fell in love. And what does that mean? Well, it could mean a lot of things. It means he's now getting out of his house, now feeling good about it. He's got all the good stuff, the oxytocin, these wonderful things that make you feel good. The best pharmacy in the world is within you. There's a whole reason why morphine and all these drugs attach receptors, because we have receptors for some of the things that are manufactured within our own body. And this gentleman was living his life and moving around, had variety in his life, whether it was with people, with movement, you know, maybe a little bit better nutrition. He just, he was motivated to do more and had a meaning in his life. And that meaning is one of the most important things when someone has pain, because yes, it's good to find ways to make it better and explore it. But when you have pain, if you focus on the pain strictly, and if you stop living your life and stop focusing on the things that are important, what happens, you stop moving which can create its own kind of pain just from a lack of activity. And you're not doing those things that bring you joy, which end up putting you more in that protect mode and you end up feeling more pain. You know, I think people have to realize that pain is not this linear process where you touch something and just one big signal goes up. That's not, pain is created from emotion, your thoughts or what they call cognition. And in all the information that comes from the periphery, it's being integrated into all that information. And so they call that nociception if you want to get technical. But information plus your emotion plus what you're thinking creates a sense of a pain experience. And so everything that you're you're going through emotionally, um, you know, uh, love can do great things. Amazing. Wonderful. I love the story. You know, in the book you did mention there was a 40% reduction in pain levels when love was, you know, an prominent component and that's what they measured or something in studies there so can you just share something about opioids you mentioned it as in your internship you didn't want to go into this part of your career it's something that i've been heavily involved for over a decade and now i'm no longer prescribing these as a regular modality but there's grave warnings about it that i don't think people actually get because they're often left with the last resource, you know, the GP or specialists have run out of ideas and they end up on narcotics. But what are the things that happen to our bodies when we go on these medications? Yeah, so opioids in general affect the mu receptor. It's M as a Mary U, the mu receptor called mu agonist. And there's there's actually other receptors that can affect too. So, and, and that's the reason for the side effects. So anytime you take a drug, And that's the problem with a lot of drugs out there is if we think of pain care as only associated with receiving a drug, we have to realize that there's other things that happen because the way our bodies are so complex. But in general, people tend to get a lot of strange side effects. The one that we know a lot because (laughs) there's a lot of commercials in America for opioid-induced constipation. So we have a lot of people, they get constipation, but even a severe form of constipation called obstipation, just essentially a very slow moving gut. And I've interviewed several people that 
after being on them for 10 years, even when they came off of it, they still have residual effects with problems with their bowel. That's one major thing. The other major thing, which is the reason why this gets such a, a huge, massive amount of attention, is the respiratory depression. So when it comes to, and I give these frequently daily and in an acute setting, for not necessarily for persistent pain, but it slows down your breathing. And so there's some people build a tolerance over time, and that's, and that's why they can handle bigger doses and not have the same breathing issues. But it becomes a huge issue, especially with those that have pre-existing sleep apnea. I'm really surprised how many people don't understand. If people are laying on their back and they're deep asleep and they already have, and there's multiple reasons people have sleep apnea. A couple of the main reasons um, in America, obviously, if they're increased adipose or fat on their body, if they put more in this area, the tissues and the muscles all relax on themselves, especially in that deepest sleep, which is in the later stages and REM sleep. So they never really get the restorative sleep if they have the sleep apnea. And when you have opioids, it makes it more profound in the relaxation of those tissues, which can make the sleep apnea worse, which can be fatal in some cases. So, you know, something that we take for granted, there's a very small space between your vocal cords that are responsible for allowing you to stay alive. And that's something that we don't really worry about. We don't watch this whole process. But when I'm in my work, I see this constantly. It's we have to help people, their jaw that sometimes can fall back on top of maybe extra tissue in the neck. So people that are on opioids, it's not recommended to use alcohol or benzodiazepines such as the Xanax and other brands like that. So those things combined actually make it more profound um, and the respiratory depression, it can be really significant. And we see this just actively in our daily practice. Obviously, we're in a controlled setting, but when you're at home and you don't have a CPAP or some way to assist you with that, it can be a really scary situation. So that is the second major thing. You know, when it comes to opioids, you can have all these other side effects too of people don't really think about this, but it can depress your hormones. Some people have testosterone deficiencies. You can also have people get dry mouth and a lot of problems with cavities. I mean, there's things that people just don't think about. You know, so like I said earlier, if you can give people a tool before you give them an opioid, which many times is around 30% benefit. So it's not really taking away all your pain, but sometimes it are going on. So sometimes it's not really treating your pain, but like we talked about how complex pain is, if it makes you just feel better, even though the pain's still there, it's not really taking away your pain and it can make you feel like you need that. It's helping you cope with stress and daily life, but has all these potential side effects. So if we can give them tools to help them deal with pain or anxiety or depression, um, those are the things that you want to instill because once you've latched on to this feeling of this helps me, this is how I cope, and that's the only thing you believe helps you, it makes it really hard to open people's minds up to these other things. In the opioid situation, there's been a lot of pendulum swinging, and there's been a little bit too aggressive um, desire to pull people off, because we know they're not the green, but once people already have found a way to live their life with them, you really have to build the belief and confidence in other skills. And this is my opinion, but I think it's a, a wiser way to go. You need to give them the skills and the confidence that they can help themselves with their own pain before you strip away any opioids because that can magnify their pain and the, the fear and the anger and all that can go along with it can magnify pain as well. So 
we need to be intelligent we're dealing with opioids and that if we're going to try to help them come down, you need to build a relationship and a trust and give them the skills before you just take them away. So that's my strong message. I think a lot of people are recognizing that after the fact, but I hope that answered your question. And Melissa, this is brilliant. I really appreciate your expertise and, you know, very clear message tonight on how can people, you know, look for balance in the different aspects of their lifestyle, you know, how they should be really looking for help to before they come off their opioids because many many people want to come off but they just don't know where to start and i just wanted to end tonight by just letting you share you know the websites that you're involved with you know the video series that you mentioned earlier on because these are great inspirations and your book pandemic is a wonderful resource for people to you know, to get into the depths of their situation so they can actually move forward and then go to the physician and say okay I need this help or I'm ready, let's reduce some medications now. So please share those resources with our audience. Sure. Well, if you want to keep track of many things that I'm involved in, my main personal website is called challengedoctor.com. If you put melissacady.com, you'll find me too, but it's it's named challengedoctor.com. And you can link on there to the painoutloud.com website, which is just a community of what I term pain challengers and pain professionals, interviews that I do on a monthly basis. And that's all free as far as those interviews. They also can be found on the Pain Out Loud app in and Google Play and iTunes. So that's easy to access and you can download them offline so that you can watch them on the airplane or something. <laughs> well, again, many, many thanks for coming on tonight. It's been a privilege. It's great to meet you. And um, I hope to be in touch with you uh, in the future too. Well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate the honor to just share the message with someone else who's like-minded. Thank you so much.